Matthew chapter 20. Um, I'm going to do a brief review because this always connects. Everything connects. Uh, so here's where we left off. We ready? Jesus is on his way to the cross. Presumably it is days away. It's the month of March. He's down south near the Jordan River. He's going to be heading west toward Jerusalem very shortly after this. A rich man who's called a rich ruler, and he's young, he comes up and bows before the Lord, and he asks him about what has to happen. What does he have to do to be saved? He's asking the right person about salvation. The problem is he actually gets up and leaves sorrowful because he does not end up getting salvation because he loves his possessions and his wealth more than he loved the Lord, more than he loved his own soul. And so he walked away without salvation. Following that, the Lord gave a lesson on how difficult it is for rich people to be, in, to be saved, to enter the kingdom. Very difficult. In fact, so difficult, it's impossible for a rich person to enter the kingdom. But frankly, it's impossible for anyone to enter the kingdom on their own. But especially, so this is why the Lord has to do the saving. With Christ, with God, all things are possible, but no one can save themselves. But the rich in particular have unique impediments that hinder them from getting saved or from living a godly life. So the very people that we may envy the most uh, are really not the ones always to be envied. They have a difficult life to live. And I know we jokingly say, Lord, give me that difficult life. But it's, they have a hard time getting saved. They're very distracted with what their money can buy. They're very distracted with earning and maintaining the money. And they're very used to trusting their money to get them what they need. And it's hard for them to realize your money will do you no good to get eternal life. So the Lord gave that lesson. You'll not see it on the screen, but I hope you have your Bible open in front of you at chapter 20. Just scroll back just a touch to 19, because what we're about to read springs from verse 27 and down to 30. I'll not like read it word for word, but verse 27, Peter replies, knowing that this rich man walked away. Peter says, see, we, talking about he and the other 11, we have left everything and followed you. What then will we have? So he that wasn't willing to follow you and sacrifice all, we have been willing to do that. And so what are we going to get for it? And the Lord then proceeds to talk about three things as a matter of fact. This world, this world will be renewed. The curse will be lifted. The Lord Jesus Christ himself will sit on a throne, glorious throne, gloriously ruling in the city of Jerusalem. And he tells them, you want to know, if you must know, since you've asked, this is what you will get. One of the things you will get. You will rule and reign with me, and you'll specifically be ruling and reigning, judging over the 12 tribes of Israel, the restored nation of Israel. I believe this is talking about the millennial kingdom. But notice the end of verse, uh, at the end, end of chapter 19, verse 30, because that book ends, our last verse, we're going to, it's going to be almost identical, slight inversion of the wording, but the same idea. So with that in mind, you're looking at verse 30 if you have your Bible open. The Lord says... But many who are first will be last and the last first. But many who are first, last week we finished with this application of that. We're going through life and we think that the ultra mega rich and powerful, they're in first place. But the Lord's letting us know the first are going to end up last and the last will end up first. He's going to invert a lot of that unless they come to Christ. But it's very hard for a wealthy person to come to Christ. It can be done. It is very, very few people. Very few people. 
So again, verse 30 is our springboard, getting ready to read chapter 20, verse 1 through 16. But many who are first will be last and the last first. Now chapter 20. For the kingdom of heaven. So here's how he's going to unfold that. So, fellas, let me tell you how this is going to unfold. That's what the Lord's saying. You want to know? I'm getting ready to tell you how things are going to unfold. This is what the kingdom is like. For the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house. Who went, out, who went out early in the morning. Early, I'll go ahead and tell you, it's 6 a.m. Some of the numbers here are the numbers of time that they use. This is 6 a.m. There's a master of a house. He went out early in the morning, 6 a.m., to hire laborers for his vineyard. He has a vineyard, owns a lot of land. He goes hires laborers. After agreeing with the laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them into his vineyard. So he goes to the marketplace, hires some laborers. As we said a few weeks ago in chapter 18... That parable, a denarius, was the expected average fair wage of a day laborer. I likened it just round numbers in our day to be like hiring a laborer for like $100 for the day. You're going to see that they work a 12-hour day. In our day, we kind of maybe run off of an 8- to 10-hour day, however it works in, in, in our culture here. But the bottom line, they've agreed to a fair wage. The expected wage is a denarius. He goes and he hires them, go work, start at 6 a.m. They're going to put in a good full day, and they know they're going to get a denarius at the end of the day. Verse 3. And going out about the third hour, so it's the third hour from 6 a.m. We're now at 9 a.m. Going out about the third hour, he saw others standing idle in the marketplace. So the marketplace doesn't mean they're like, Shopping at Walmart, it means they're like in the square, in the city where day laborers would go. He goes back at nine, he finds some more laborers standing idle, not doing anything in the market. To them, he said, a little different this time, because now it's 9 a.m., it's not going to be a full day. He says, You go into the vineyard too, and whatever is right, I will give you. Got a deal for you, so you guys aren't working yet. Got a crew already started. If you're willing, go into my vineyard. It's the one right over there. And when it's done, I'll do whatever is right. Deal? Verse number five. So they went. Sounds good to us. We need to work. So they went. Going out again about the sixth hour. This is noon. And the ninth hour, 3 p.m., he did the same. We're not told the details this time. Same thing. Comes back to the market. It's now noon. Other groups may be taking a quick lunch break. Comes back. Fellas, let's, guys are standing around idle. Nobody's hired us. Hey, go work in my vineyard at the end of the day. I'll do you right. Goes back at 3 o'clock. Same exact thing. If you'll go work in my vineyard at the end of the day, I'll do right. Know that you're not doing working a whole day. You only have three hours left. Verse 6. And about the 11th hour, this is now 5 p.m., he went out and found others standing. And he said to them, why do you stand here idle all day? They said to him, because no one has hired us. Nobody's hired us. Technically, it's not their fault. Nobody's hired us. He said to them, you go into the vineyard too. And when evening came, so off they go, verse 8. And when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman. So the owner of the vineyard has a foreman. Watch what the foreman does. He says to the foreman, call the laborers, all the laborers. No doubt a sound is made calls all the laborers and pay them their wages. You call them, you pay them their wages. Beginning with the last up to the first. Now we know the order that, it's, that the pay is going to happen. This is very, very strange. This is unusual. 
This is already striking our, our ear. If we're really into the story, put ourselves into the story, travel back in time, all of a sudden we realize that those that just got there within the last hour, in fact, they were hired at 5 o'clock in the marketplace to have to walk over to the vineyard, haven't even put in a whole hour's work, and now they're at the front of the line getting ready to get paid, followed by the 3 p.m., the noon, 9 a.m., and then finally the... You can see how he's showing us verse 30. He's drawing that out. He's giving us what this looks like. Now, verse number 9. And when those hired about the 11th hour, remember they're the first in line, been there an hour. Those hired at the 11th hour came, each of them received, what are they going to get? A denarius. They got a whole day's wage. They got the coin, this coin, again, kind of like popping a $100 bill. Whoa. Did you mean, you, you know, we're the ones actually that just got doing what he said. So there's no misunderstanding. You know, the other guys are at the back. That's, your, that's what you get. <laughs> Woo! <laughs> Sweet! All right, moving on. It didn't say that in the text, but that's kind of what happened. All right, what's going on up there? All right, verse 10. Now, when those hired first, so you kind of got to know that the others progressed through. Now, when those hired first came, they thought they would receive more. But each of them also received a denarius. They got their work from 6 a.m. to 6 p.m. The other guys got there at 5 p.m. after, worked till 6. They get a denarius. These guys get the same denarius. Verse 11, quite understandably, and on receiving it, their pay, they grumbled at the master of the house, saying, these last worked only one hour. And you've made them equal to us who've borne the heat, the burden of the day, and the scorching heat? But he replied to one of them, apparently the union leader was the loudest, so he talks to the union leader guy. But he replied to one of them, friend, I'm doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give to this last worker as I give to you. Watch verse 15. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? So the last will be first and the first last. Oh, this ought to be some fun, right? <laughs> Jesus gives these stories. All right. I'm going to do a little longer introduction than normal before we get to our points. We just kind of need to set a few things up. Number one, these day laborers, guys, we need to understand the, the conditions. So, you with me? They're at the bottom of the list. They don't have assurances and security of daily provisions. Like, they're technically at the bottom of the list. They're the least secure people. They live desperately day to day. You notice they get paid at the end of the day? There's a reason for that. They have to have today's wage to meet today's or tomorrow's need. Technically, I read multiple sources, even slaves, in some ways, had it better than them. Slaves will give up their freedoms, but some people in that culture on purpose would become someone else's slave because as long as that master and the family does well, then I know I get fed every day. These day laborers, they don't have that assurance. They are desperate for work. They want to put, it, literally, it, there was no unemployment benefits in that culture, in the Roman culture. You don't eat, you, you don't work, you're not going to eat. 
They need work, and they're desperate to do it, and they'll do it, even if it means not even knowing what's going to be given to them. So that's kind of the dynamic. That's, and again, the denarius is the expected day's wage. Some of them get promised that at the beginning of the day. That's verse 2. So note the group that come at 6 a.m. There's an agreement that is made for a denarius. But then there's a difference. Look at verse number 3. Going out about the third hour, he saw others standing idle. Same idea around verse 5 in the first part of verse 5. And then even all the way to 5 p.m., some are standing idle. Why stand you here idle all day long? Please, let's not hear that. And I read that the first time or two, and I started trying to read a little too much into that. Let's not read into that that these folks are lazy. It's not meaning they're lazy. All it means is we haven't been hired. Why? We could go into a thousand reasons. If you really want to... Put yourself, we're not told details, go back and think through that. Maybe some lived in another town or outskirts of town. It took them longer to get there, and they got there somehow after 6 o'clock when most of the workers are taken, and they're late. Some, no doubt, had to finish up a prior day's work that didn't quite finish. It's not enough for a whole day, and maybe they couldn't get there until 9 o'clock. Needed to finish that. Want to keep a good reputation, told that guy I'd be there. Now I'm ready to get even a partial day if I can get it. And some, no doubt, just as workers are being hired, are passed over, just maybe by physical appearance, and those can be deceiving. I used to do a lot of construction with my dad, and I've seen a lot of construction sites, and you see a guy walk up, and you think, man, he's going to be a huge help, and he's not. And you see others like, he ain't going to be able to do anything, and that guy is just wiry strong and just works all day long, and I've seen it both ways, and I've seen it like you think it would be. So maybe like they just got passed over, and these others look better, and so bottom line, we're at the mercy of getting hired. We were not hired. And so that's the issue. I would plant, because if I have time, I want to finish back with this thought. There's a notable difference between those that were hired at 6 a.m. and all the other four groups. Did you catch the difference? The first group knows what they're hired for. They have an arrangement. They know they're getting a denarius. The last four groups, all they know is we're going to go work, and we're taking this man's word for it. We're, We're trusting his integrity and goodness Hopefully, what he says is right matches what we feel is right. Just going to have to trust him. So there's a trust factor. Now, with that in mind, I need to hit two more things before we get into our first point this morning. And that's two kind of overview things. I hope you'll catch what I'm about to say. When we're reading parables, when we're preaching and teaching in parables, we need to be especially careful because parables generally teach a main idea or a few ideas. Where we get in trouble is when we read a parable and we see all these details. This one has many details to it. If you read too much into, if you overemphasize obscure details, then all of a sudden you can find yourself distorting very clear biblical truth that is made clear in other passages. We had this a couple of chapters ago. Remember back in chapter 18, the the unforgiving servant. He's forgiven of his debt, and at the end, he's back given over to the torturers. And if you're not careful, you look at that and think, oh, he was forgiven of his sin. He has, that stands for he has eternal life. But over here, because he's unforgiven, he ends up losing his eternal life. He lost his salvation. That's not what the passage teaches. It's not the main idea. If you only read this passage and block out the rest of Scripture, you're going to come to the conclusion that the way to go to heaven is by working. you got to go work in the vineyard, and then you'll get the reward. That'd be a wrong conclusion. You're reading too much into those details, missing the main points Jesus is making. So here's another one. I actually want you to write this down. The fact that all the workers in the story, all five hours of hiring group, 
all five of those groups, end up with the same pay, the same denarius, that does not negate clear Bible teaching that at the judgment seat of Christ, each Christian will receive according to their own labor. So that's not the takeaway. Man, it looks like everybody ends up with a denarius. I guess no matter what happens here, it all ends up exactly the same for everybody. We're all just all the exact same. That's not the lesson. So don't be fooled by that. That would be the wrong interpretation. This parable, so be a, remember, parables are to make truth more clear, not to override and negate clear doctrine that is taught in other parts of the Bible. And so 1 Corinthians 3 and other parts of Corinthians and other places that Jesus teaches and Peter and John and, Jesus, and, and Paul, all of them teach about the upcoming judgment that is to come and the individuality of that judgment. And so this does not override all of that. All right. Here's the last thing by way of introduction. And this one is kind of broad. Step back. We just read this. I apologize. I wish you had time for you guys to, if I I could read it again or for you just to read it over and over three or four times. But having just tasted it one time, I want to ask you some survey questions. Don't answer out loud. See, what's the first thought that pops in your mind? So we know that the parable is about the kingdom. Jesus is giving this parable, the kingdom of heaven is like this. So we know it's about the kingdom. So don't say out loud. First thought, what does the vineyard stand for? What does the vineyard stand for? Second thought, who is this landowner? Who does he represent? Another one, this foreman who calls the workers and actually does the paying, who does he represent? Who are the various laborers, all the different laborers working in the vineyard? Who do they represent? And then we would also ask, this denarius, everybody ends up getting a denarius. What does the denarius stand for? And then one more question. The work day, and it varies, the work day itself, what does it represent? And so I read this and I thought, boy, that kind of sums it up. I've got to share it with the people. So let's take that note, put on the screen what we have with... Uh, or is it already up there? No, next note. John MacArthur writes the following. So this helps us as far as interpreting because I think it's spot on. The vineyard is there for the kingdom. So we know it's about the kingdom. So what is the kingdom? The vineyard is the kingdom. The vineyard is the kingdom itself. The landowner, who's that represent? The landowner is God the Father. That seems pretty clear. And he writes, the foreman, remember, who calls everyone and actually gives the pay, is the Son, God the Son, Jesus Christ. So who are these labors, all the various labors? They represent various believers all around the world, all through the ages, believers in Christ. So what is the denarius? The denarius is eternal life. They all end up getting eternal life, which all received equally for trusting Christ. So the denarius all end up getting a denarius. The work day in particular, this is main one, main, one of the main reasons I put this note for you, is the work day is the believers, remember all the ones out working in the field, they represent believers. The work day is the believers' lifetime of service for the Lord. It's their lifetime. So the point being here, there's varying amounts of service. There's varying amount of time to serve the Lord. But one thing is the same. Everyone who's in the vineyard knows that they're working for the vineyard, for the landowner, for the foreman. So the idea, all believers, though we're not yet in the final culmination of the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of Christ, 
We know that even right now we're already in a phase of that. And to be in the vineyard, to be in the family, to be one of the believers in Jesus, our whole life is to be caught up in working to advance the kingdom. And so that's a good overview from there. Let's launch into three ideas. So I'm going to preach this. Obviously, it requires us to preach this very differently than we normally would. Normally, we'd go verse by verse and have a little section and move on down. We're not going to do that today. We're going to take the dynamic of the whole passage and pull out three main ideas. And I think if you had time to read them over and over, you'd see, if you haven't already, you'd see these same three ideas. I think they're the dominant ones. Number one, God is more than fair. The Lord wants us to understand that God is more than fair. Would you guys put yourself into the story? Let's go into the story ourselves. Go back in time. There's a vineyard, right? Grapes. We don't know what part... What phase it is of this vineyard? Is it getting ready to be planted? Is it being pruned? Is it being reaped? We don't know the details. In fact, you could look through history and make applications. We could go overbake the ham on all kinds of things and say, oh, there's a planting, and then there's a pruning, and then there's this ultimate reaping. And then, Again, we could really go too, too deep into that thought. Here's the bottom line. Put yourself into that time period. Again, I've been on a lot of construction sites. If you're a 6 a.m. worker, and you're working and you're working and you're working. And apparently this is a large vineyard because the owner keeps going back and bringing more laborers. As you see new people arrive on the job site at 9 o'clock, you've already been there three hours. As you see new people coming, what is your thought? As you're looking around and all the work that needs to be done, I would assume the thought would be some gratitude, some gratefulness. Great, we got some help coming. This is good. Goes back at noon. Oh, great. New, new, new recruits. Got to get some fresh energy in here. We're getting a little tired. They're going to pick up 3 o'clock, even 5 o'clock. So there's probably some gratitude, but I'm wondering, let's be real, whether it's this or whether it's this, however they're doing it, you know. Here comes a whole other truckload of people, another batch. Oh, the more as your mind is allowed to think, do they ever wonder, so I wonder what those guys are going to get paid. What are they going to get? I started at 6. Now, those guys over there, hey, man, you got here at 9. You, you ever wonder what wonder what's going to pay them? 3 o'clock. It's still bringing work. wonder what they're going to get. Ah, ain't got time to think about it. Just keep moving. I'll probably never know. Probably never know what, how much they get paid. Not my business. I got, I got work to do. And back they go. But then everything switches. So now it's the end of the day, and it's time to get paid. So now I want you to think, let's go to the 5 p.m. one-hour workers. Notice three things about them. They only worked an hour if... Not even a full hour. I mean, really, they get their time to kind of pick up tools and maybe do just a little bit of whatever it was, gather tools together, wash them off, put them over back in the shed, and next thing you know, so they do only one hour of labor. Number two, they're at the front of the line getting paid first, and when it's all said and done, they end up turning around popping a $100 bill, or they have a whole denarius. And as I said, it was like, sweet, man, this is awesome. They're so excited. They didn't see it coming. It's totally blown away unprecedented, unexpected. We got a whole day's wage. We just got here. If you're the three o'clock workers, put yourselves in their shoes. If you really do it now, if you're the three o'clock worker, what's your first thoughts? I think I put myself in that position. I'm seeing the like, what'd you get? hundred bucks. Uh-uh. Wow. And they're saying, man, we love this guy. Man, I hope you get to work for him. He's awesome. Aren't you right about then thinking, you know, if they got a denarius, I wonder if we're going to get a denarius. I don't know. We're, we're, we're getting ready to find out. 
And they do. They get a whole day's wage. And now they're super excited, a whole day's wage for only 25% of the work. This is great. This is awesome. Off they go excited. And, of course, the next group's noting what the first two groups. But now here's my thought, because I put myself into that scenario. I wonder how far, is it a matter of seconds or a couple of minutes before it dawns on that second group? Hey, you know, we work three times as long as that first group. That's what we do. Do you know they only work one hour? We work three hours. And they probably start going down this rabbit hole and down this road. And finally, it occurs to them, ah, who cares? We got a whole day's wage. Man, my wife's going to be excited. I thought I was going to have to go, go back home again today and tell her I didn't get another job. And I don't know how we're going to eat tomorrow. But, man, I'm, I'm hitting the store. I'm getting, I'm getting breakfast for, for tomorrow. And I'm going to give her that. And she'll have something to eat for a day or two. This is awesome. And all I had to do was work three hours. So they thought that, guys, I believe that little tinge that just for a second haunted the 3 p.m. workers grows and grows and grows the further back in the line you go. Why? You'll only appreciate what I'm about to say if you've ever worked for a company that has multiple employees. Most employees are well aware of what their fellow employees do and how long they work. And it's the truth. That dynamic is true at your place of employment. Everybody's aware. It would be the rarest of rare employees. I'm picturing, a, 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 you know, the old plant. And there's these rows of people, and they got their machine. Can you imagine? This guy right here is so caught up in what he's doing. Man, he's in the zone. He's working his 8, 10, 12-hour day. He's so caught up that he doesn't even notice that the guy right there doesn't come in at all today. Is he not going to notice that this guy comes in two hours later? Is he not going to notice that this guy over here cut out an hour and a half early? Is he not noticing that this person behind him is on the phone all day, talking, texting, laughing, and takes five or six smoke breaks and seems to seemingly lives in the bathroom? Are you telling me he's not going to notice that? You guys know full well that dynamic is at your place. In fact, I'm going to tell you who's most aware of that dynamic are those who think they're doing the most. Those who think I'm doing the most are the most aware of what everybody else is doing or not doing. And frankly, those who do the least, they don't want to think about it. And they don't want to make those comparisons because they kind of like the way it is. And I just don't want to lose my job. Like, they don't worry about it. I'm the personality guy. I keep it light. I don't do a lot, but you need me here, right? And some of you are thinking, have you been to my work? <laughs> Again, those who do the most are very well, well aware of what everybody else is doing. And here come the 6 a.m. workers. Look at verse 10. Remember our point is God is more than fair. Verse 10. Now when those hired first came, they thought, they made a thought they're going to get paid more. Y'all ready? Hang with me. They think they're going to get paid more than what? They think, can we say, they assume they expect to get paid more than them. But not even realizing, by thinking, assuming, expecting that we're going to get paid more than them, what they're thinking, assuming, and expecting, we're going to get paid more than we agreed to. So I'm reading that over and over. Finally, it dawns on me that I think what the Lord's point is, I think, Jeff, what gives those people the right to think and expect and assume they're going to get more than they agreed. They're not thinking about what they agreed to. They're thinking in comparison to these others. What gives them the right? What gives this person 
the ability to justify in their mind that they should feel this way? Well, I'm going to tell you the answer. Human logic. Human logic gave them three reasons. Here's the three reasons. We expect, assume, we think we're going to get paid more than them. Here's why. We have done more than them. We've been here longer than them. And we've been here under worse conditions. We got here at 6 o'clock. Those got here at noon. Those three, and especially that last group, been here only an hour. Are you kidding me? You're going to give them the same as that. That will not work. That is not fair. That's the way human logic works. This makes total sense in their mind. In fact, if we just read the story in our devotional time and kind of very quickly skipped on through without going into the details, we'd look at it and say, I totally get it. That makes total sense to me. I'm feeling for these people. They're getting, they're getting really done over the wrong way. I won't say what you thought I was about to say. All right? So what's going on? We, here's the main one. We've not only been here longer, we've done more. If this is planting season, these people would look over at the hillside and say, look at all the rocks I pulled out of that hill. Look at that wall. Look at all the dirt pile. You see all the dirt that I hauled in there? Look at those flags. Look how straight my rows are. All the flags, all the sea. Look how great my, look at that little section over there. They hardly just started pulling some rocks out. They have built no wall. They've not poured, poured any dirt in there. They're getting this. That's not right. If it's pruning, Look at my massive burn pile over there of all the pruning I've done. And look at their little bitty few, maybe one truckload over here. Or if it's reaping time, they would be able to say, look at their scrawny little two wheelbarrowfuls of grapes. And look at my multiple trucks over there. Like, look how beautiful and uniform my section looks. And these guys got here at the end of the day just enough time to basically pick up the tools. And the thought goes something like this. If you pay them that for only one hour, then you need to pay us more. And guys, I'm getting ready to tell you, here's, here's going to hit our main points on this. The fact that our human nature links in this whole story, who do we associate with the most? If we just read this, we naturally associate with the 6 a.m. workers. And that's kind of how we approach life because we see ourselves that way. We really feel for them, and that's a tell about our human nature. I hope spiritually we don't look at our life like that. I hope spiritually we think of ourselves, honestly, that's not me. I'm more like the 5 p.m. guy that just got there and got the blessing. I hope that's how you view yourself. But our mind, our human nature says, oh, no, I'm really more in this group. R.T. France plays on that, and he understands psychology and human nature. He writes the following. Look at verse 13. So look at it one more time. I'll I'll give you the quote from him. But he replied to one of them, Friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? France writes, The retort of the landowner is, of course, technically correct. No one has been cheated. The agreement has been scrupulously observed. Did you get it? Hey, whoa, 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 whoa. I see you're mad. Hang on. Did you not know what was coming? Yes. Did I give you what we agreed on? Yes. Do you understand I did not have to hire you in the first place? Yes. All right. You just went over three. What's your point? I gave you what we agreed on. You knew what you were getting. I didn't even have to hire you in the first place. It is good for you that you got to work. Do you have a denarius in your hand? So France asked this question. Why then do we still feel that there is something wrong? 
You feel it. I feel it. I read this. You feel it. Why do we feel this? He answers, because we cannot detach ourselves from the ruling convention that rewards should be commensurate to the services rendered when one man is rewarded far in excess of what has been earned while another receives only the bare sum agreed, we detect unfair discrimination. But Francis correct in summarizing saying, but the kingdom of heaven does not operate on the basis of commercial convention. God rules by grace. That's what we have to understand. And so now I want to talk frankly with you just for a moment. Ladies and gentlemen, we believe, we think with all of our being that we see things correctly. We think we see things as they really are. We think we see things uprightly, but we don't. This is what we have to understand. I'm talking about me and you. We think we see things uprightly, but we don't. You say, Jeff, why? Because the fall of sin causes all mankind to go through life often having a distorted, twisted view of things. Guys, look at me. Here's how we're going through life. We're going through life like this. Yeah, Jeff, I see things as they are. I see things uprightly. And what the Lord is trying to say is, oh, no, no, no. What? But here we are. We're going, I, I promise you. Even as I'm saying this, many of you may be sitting there thinking, yeah, that may be true of you, Jeff, and those other poor saps. I'm discerning. I'm smart. I know how things are. I'm telling you, you don't. I'm talking about when you are in charge of your thinking. The Bible says there is a way that seems right unto a man, but the end thereof are the ways of death. This makes total sense to us. We're twisted. We don't see things as they really are. And so we go read smart people. But if those smart people are not getting their ideas from the word of God, you're only buying into a bunch of lies, a bunch of other, you're, you're reading after a bunch of twisted people going through life looking like this and like, oh, yeah, this makes great. Look how smart. Yes, they're making observances and coming to conclusions. But if they're not drawing their truth from here, they're just going through the life with the twain, same twisted view that we all have. This is how we see life. That's why we think these workers have the right to complain but they don't. The Lord's trying to tell us something. His ways are not our ways. That's why we must be sure to constantly ask God, what does he say about a matter? And listen, never question the fairness of God. God is always more than fair. Don't question the fairness of God. Write this down. God, and I could even add his word, are always right, even when we think he's not. They're always right. He's always right. His word, God, is always right. We think we're right. And I'm just telling you, when our ideas don't line up with the word of God, our, our, our ideas are wrong. They're incorrect. And I get it. We read this parable. It, it did it to me. It does it to me. It does it to you. Much in the word of God, frankly, it goes against the grain. When something goes against the grain, what do you need to do? Turn the grain. What we want to do is turn the force that is going against the grain. God's ways and God's thought goes against the grain of our thinking. And so what we want to do is 
That can't be what the Bible says, and so we want to twist the Word of God and find little parts and like, what does other people say? And let's just kind of maybe even discard the Word of God because I want to go through life having my thoughts. What we better do is turn ourselves to align with the grain. Ladies and gentlemen, what I want to encourage you to do is we must learn the truths of God. And adopt the truths of God. See them, even if they go against the grain, even if it's totally against our natural inclination, when we know for sure that the Bible really is saying something, that's the first thing. Does the Bible really teach that? Once we know that the Bible is teaching that, even if it goes against our natural inclination, we need to adopt those truths as reliable truth. In a moment, our second point is going to totally cut against the grain. I'm just telling you. It's coming. We're sitting here, no, Jeff, I'm good. I see things clearly. And I, whatever the Bible says, I'm good. I'm quick to get on board with it. I'm fine. Oh, really? We're getting ready to find out. Before we do that, let's take one more note. In verse 11, we see these first hour workers, these early morning workers are grumbling. Write this thought. We often, I'm talking about you and I, we often grumble because we tend to evaluate God's goodness by comparing our present conditions with other people. Why are they so worked up? Because they're looking at their conditions. We worked 12 hours. They worked one hour. One hour. This isn't fair. Guys, I'm telling you, if you go through life trying to evaluate how good God is to me by looking at everybody else, I'll tell you who we tend to look at. We tend to look at people who we think have a better condition than us. We rarely ever want to look at people who we see having worse condition. We always want to compare, and then we get mad and start. Whether or not we do it outwardly, we just kind of have this subtle underlying murmuring toward God. And we don't have the right to do that. God is always fair. Can I ask you two quick questions before we hit our second point? Do you ever assume that God owes you what he gives everyone else or what he gives anyone else? Do you assume God owes you what he gives others? Maybe even more pointed. This may be a family. This may be a person. I hope no one comes to mind. Does it ever make you angry when God does good for someone else? Do you ever think, they already have that, they can do that, they have them, and they have that, and now I just saw that they're getting to go do that, and I'm not getting to do any of that. And all of a sudden, before you even realize it, you're all worked up, and we don't even know it, we're mad at God. And that's a problem. God's always more than fair. But we go through life twisted. And that's why we have to look to the Word of God to correct and make our thinking upright. Which brings us to the second thought this morning. God gives grace to whom he chooses. God gives grace to whom he chooses. Would you notice verse 15? Because the whole story seems to be really culminating to 15 and 16. Actually, let's even back up to 13. But he replied to one of them. So again, these people feel... Totally, like this is not right, it's unfair. He replied to one of them, friend, I'm doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. I, see verse 14, I choose. I choose. I choose to give to this worker as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose? 
with what belongs to me, or do you begrudge my generosity? So the last will be first and the first last. What's going on? This landowner, this master, realizes the poverty of these workers. He obviously has many, many resources, and he takes pity and compassion on them. Listen, they've not earned a denarius, but he gave them a denarius anyway. This landowner represents God the Father. God the Father is the ultimate ruler of, we sang this a while ago, king. Several, two songs at least, had the idea that God is the king, that Jesus is the king. So we sing this, but ultimately what the point the Lord is trying to make is that God is the ultimate ruler. He's the ultimate master over all things. He makes all, listen to me ladies and gentlemen, God makes all the rules. So one of the points that the Lord is making in this parable is that it is God's prerogative to do whatever he wills with his resources. It is up to him and to him alone. Y'all help me with another word for this. I say that God is sovereign over all things, which means that God has complete control. Like literally, he controls, he decides. God decides. God is sovereign over all things. Why? He made. There was nothing. God made everything. He controls it all. He's, he made it all. He's sovereign over it all. It all answers back to him. He sustains it all. Literally, he is holding it all together. He made it. He sustains it. It all is going to give a report back to him. Here's my thought. God answers to no one about how he runs his universe. And if we ever think as little bitty pipsqueak little human beings... God's not fair, and God has to answer to me. You do not have that right. I'm telling you, you're going to go through life frustrated, and you will lose if you think God has to answer to you. God does not answer to you or me or all of us together, and that's the point he's being made. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Am I not allowed to do with what, do what I choose with what belongs to me? And we read that and say, well, yes, certainly, of course, until we start applying it. How do we apply this? He can do anything he wants with his resources. This will be a whole series of messages, but it'll be a brief note. Write this down. This applies to how God bestows earthly blessings. Earthly blessings. He decides. That one gets those blessings. This applies to how God will later on reward Christians. That's the message he's trying to get across to us. Peter, you asked that question? You want to know? I'll tell you some of what you're going to get. But you're not going to know everything that everybody's going to get. And the point is, he's the master. He can reward people however he wants. And even number three, how does this apply? This applies even to those that God chooses to give salvation. It applies to those that God chooses to give salvation. I draw your attention again to verse 14 and 15 where two times... The parable teaches, I choose, I choose. So we're not going to do a deep dive, so that's the good news this morning, right? I'm not going to do a deep dive into this. If you need a deep dive, then go back and hear the messages in Romans 9 and 11, and that would be more of our, frankly, very raw view of this doctrine. But just to state it bluntly, let me just say it bluntly. You ready? God chooses who he saves. 
God chooses who he saves. That is the doctrine of election. That is the doctrine where God chooses who he saves. Look, if you would, we're not going to track all through the Bible. Let's just go to Romans 9, and we'll see maybe the tip of the spear of what Scripture has to say on this doctrine that is in so much of the Word of God. Romans chapter 9, very quickly. So we're just coming off this idea. God is sovereign over all things. He answers to no one how he runs his universe. It's his prerogative to do whatever he wants. It's his resources. That affects who he gives blessings on earth, blessings in eternity, even who goes to heaven. This is God's call. He chooses. We're jumping in the middle of a whole discussion here in Romans 9, but look if you would, verse 14. You got your Bible open? Look at verse 14. Paul anticipates our question, and he says, What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? I'm telling you, go study this. This is exactly what it's talking about. What shall we say then? What are we going to conclude? Is there injustice on God's part? Is God unfair? Is he doing it wrong? Paul answers under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, by no means, by no means, no, means don't ever think that, don't ever say it, no, don't even think that thought. May it never be said, may it never be. Again, what shall we say to these things? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, God says to Moses, I will, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. And I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. Notice it's God's will. And if that's not clear enough, it is crystal clear in verse 16. So then, here's a conclusion. So then it, what is it? Salvation. That's the context. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, meaning mankind's efforts and works to be righteous. It depends. It, salvation depends not on human will or exertion, but on, remember what we said back when we taught chapter 9? Those of us who've been taught by Paul's doctrine, if we didn't see the next word, we already know this doctrine. Oh, it's not on human will. It's not on human exertion, but on faith. It's on faith. It's about whoever has faith, not works. That's what we think the next word would be. That would be true. But Paul writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Look at it again. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God. Who's it depend on? God who has mercy. It's on God who has mercy. So here's, here we come to this. We have this doctrine of election, and like me, we don't like that. We struggle with that. We start murmuring and maybe even outwardly grumbling over this doctrine. But the fact is, it's clearly taught all through Scripture. Did you write that note? And I think you have a few references. You see Romans 9 on your handout. You see Ephesians 1 and 2. I'm just telling you, go slow read over and over and over, slow read over and over and over, all through Romans 9, and don't come with your own agenda like I used to do. Let it say what Romans 9 says. Look at Romans 11. Let it say what it says. Look at Ephesians 1 and 2. Look at John chapter 6. Frankly, look at 1 Peter chapter 1. Look at 2 Peter chapter 1. Look at Acts chapter 2, Acts chapter 13. The entire Old Testament. The Jews never struggled with this. The Jews knew that they were called. They were chosen. They literally know that. 
And I get it. We don't like that doctrine. And so we buck and we resist. So here's where I think sometimes we're intellectually dishonest with ourselves. A lot of people will go to, I'm not going to do it now, a lot of people will go to John 6 and they'll readily admit Jesus in John 6 refers to himself as the bread of life and he says, if you want life, you must come to me. John 14, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. Acts 4 verse 13, there is none other name given among men whereby we, whereby we must be saved. We know it's only through Christ. So here's the point. John 6, Jesus very clearly says, if you want eternal life, you have to come to me. You have to come to me for eternal life. We agree with that. But then in verse 44 and later on in verse 64, Jesus says, but no one can come to me unless what? Unless the Father. So there's Christ. Here I am. No one. I'm no one. There's Christ. No one can come to Christ. You have to come to Christ to get saved. The only way to be saved is by putting your full trust in what he did on the cross. That's the only way to be saved. He does all the saving. You don't do any, not by our exertion. But I can't come to Christ because I'm, as we said last week, I'm born with this dead spirit that's separated from God. Just as much as this pulpit here has heard the gospel over and over and over, I'm a human being with a dead spirit. I hear the gospel over and over and over. It never makes any sense to me until... No one can come to me. But that's the only way to be saved until the Father draws me to the Son. So we see that, and then some, like, okay, okay, I give that. I give that. But here's where many of us, and some die this way. We all begin this way. Some die this way. I understand that dynamic. And yes, I understand. Have to have it. He has to draw us. But never being intellectually honest enough to admit that God chooses to draw some while passing over others. And I don't understand it. I know the reason is Romans 8, 28 and 29. And the reason is in first Ephesians chapter 1. And it's in Romans 9 that we didn't read a while ago. And if you think I'm not dividing this correctly, you ought to go back and look at the previous verses in Romans 9 before verse 14. There's these twin boys, Jacob and Esau. It's in the text. Before they're ever born, before they did good or bad. And it's not like, well, God knows who. No, 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 no. Before they're ever born, it was already told to the mother, Rebekah, the older's going to serve the, the, the younger because God says, Jacob have I loved and Esau have I hated. And then he goes on and says, verse 16. Guys, one more time, verse 16, I'm moving on. So then it depends not on human will. If anything, we go around and talk about free will, man's free will. Man's free will just got blown out of the water in verse 16. Totally blown out of the water. Some people teach this. Jesus died on the cross. God makes the offer to everybody who wants to get saved, put their faith in Jesus, you'll get saved. That is absolutely true. Right? But where... Where we're wrong is when we don't go the next step and say that only those that God draws will be saved. So we get this wrong idea. Sproul helps us. He writes, we have the idea. So here's our point. God gives grace. I told you a while ago, God's always fair. But he doesn't seem. I know. that's That's how we think. The Lord's trying to correct our thoughts. 
We have the idea, he writes, that if God gives his saving grace to one person, in order to be just, he must give the same grace to that person's neighbor. And the idea in them, and then theirs, and theirs. However, he's so correct, if God is required to give his grace to anyone, it is not grace. If he's required to give, you know, if you're required to bring a gift to the Christmas party, it isn't really a gift. So he's right. If God is required to give his grace to anyone, it's not grace. Write this note. Let's go back to our baseline. What is the baseline? Here's the baseline. The baseline is that all have sinned against God and deserve his judgment. All people have sinned against God. All of us have sinned against God. And we deserve his judgment. And that's the baseline. Hey, end of story. Right? Well, not end of story. Could have been end of story. It really could have been as this simple, guys. We know what God requires, even if we never have the Bible. We have this thing called a conscience we're born with. And our conscience tells us not to do something. There's not been one person ever who kept their conscience totally clean. We all blow by at some point. We blow by our conscience, knowing that we're sinning, knowing we're doing the wrong thing. We all sin against God, and those of us have had the Bible, clearly, and we have even more things that we know we've sinned against. We've all blown God's rules. We've all just offended Him with our acts of sin and our sinfulness. And for that, we deserve death. We deserve eternal separation, even in torment. That's God who makes the rules. And you'd think that would be the end of the story. But God, who's rich in grace and mercy, sends his son, Jesus, to die on the cross, takes all our sins. Anyone who will put their faith in him, they get to go to heaven, have eternal life. Write this second part of your note. We do not under, is it, I don't it's not up there, good. We do not understand grace. I'm telling you we don't. Until we understand that God does not have to give it to anyone, much less everyone. We don't understand grace until we understand God doesn't have to give grace to anyone. If God doesn't have to give grace to anyone, then he surely doesn't have to give grace to everyone. Only then, when we understand that, is it seen as a gift. Only then is it seen as a gift. So we'll move to our third point in just a moment, and it's the briefest. I told you we wouldn't do a deep dive. If you need a deeper dive, then dive into Romans 9 and 11 and Ephesians 1 and 2 and those passages, and also put 1 Peter 1 and 2 Peter 1 and Acts 2 and Acts 13 and keep going. And the Old Testament, anyway. Look at verse 15 one more time. You ready? One more time. Before we move on, back to Matthew. Look at verse 15. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me, or do you begrudge my generosity? Hey, guys, we cannot tell God how he must bestow his grace. If we begrudge God for the doctrine of election, then I almost think that the Lord could ask it this way. Hey, whoa, whoa, whoa. You who are mad at me. And by the way, that does happen. Many, like, nope, don't believe it, don't believe it, don't believe it. And then some finally realize, Ugh. well, you know what? If that's the God of the Bible, then, okay, really? God might would ask us this, would you rather I save no one? Because that's who deserves to be saved. Wait, who, who deserves to be saved? No one. 
Would you rather I save no one? God might ask us this question. Oh, whoa, whoa, whoa. If you all break my rules and deserve my judgment, but I save many, many, billions, but I don't save all, you call me unfair? When I don't have to save anyone, it's all grace. Do you know if I saved one person, it's grace, and I've saved billions, and you're calling me unfair? You don't have that right. I don't answer to you. Number three. Third thought this morning is our briefest one, and that's present appearances may not reflect eternity. So we want to be careful. This takes us back to the rich young ruler. Those who seem to be in first place, mm, often it's going to be reversed in a major way. Don't put too much stock into what you think you see. Eternal realities are going to be the real thing. Present appearances are very deceiving. So quickly look at verse 16. So the last will be first and the first last. And he gave us this parable about all these labors. So here I, I, I studied this. I looked at this over and over and over. I asked myself, came to some conclusions, read some other authors. They came to some of the exact same conclusions, worded it better than I had it. And so I'm going to borrow heavily from them as we come down the home stretch. Verse number one for the kingdom of heaven is like a master of the house who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard and agreeing with the laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them into his vineyard. So I'm wondering, who do these people represent? Jesus does not tell us specifically who they represent. And I think it's on purpose because I think they can represent multiple people. In fact, they do represent multiple people. Like who? Let's study this group first quickly. Jesus does not identify the first workers, the early workers in verse 1, but maybe they represent and seem to represent the apostles themselves. Can it be that they represent the apostles? The apostles just heard Peter's question. Lord, we did leave everything. What do we get? What do we get? And the Lord says, here's what you get. If you have to know, you're going you're to rule and reign over tribes of Israel. That's not all that they're going to get, but they're definitely going to get that. Barclay writes the following. So who are these early workers? What does this stand for? Remembering verse 16, so the last will be first and the first last. Barclay writes, it is as if Jesus said to them, to the disciples, you have received the great privilege of coming into the Christian church and fellowship very early. Very, you're the first ones. Right at the beginning. The time will come in the latter days. Others will come in. You must not claim special honor and special place because you were Christians before they were. All men, no matter when they come, are equally precious and valuable to God. So, Jeff, is the Lord undoing? No, no, no. Let's be very clear. I believe in the millennial kingdom is the time period, but here's what we know. These apostles, minus Judas, pick up Matthias, the 12 will rule and reign over the restored nation of Israel, over those 12 tribes. They will rule over them. But I think one of the lessons the Lord is giving them is just because you're first, and even though you're going to have that position in the millennial kingdom, don't think that that automatically necessarily means you're going to be first place in eternity. Talking to you, apostles. Don't assume because you're first now, you're going to be first then. They will have a special place in the, in the millennium. So don't just make assumptions. So Jeff, I don't know. And I get it. I know about the walls, the new Jerusalem, and that's great. But I'm telling you, we don't know how things have all fallen out. There have been some great women of God and great men of God been born and, and served the Lord in the last 2,000 years. And some are still coming. 
So we can't say who's first. Second, probability and possibility. Who do these workers represent? They can represent the Jews. The Jews who had a covenant with God. Now we're going back 4,000 years ago. We're talking about the first at the early part of the day. Or we can even look back to 2,000 years ago to the church. To the first Jewish Christian. The church was Jewish and it's like first 7 to 10 years. So the early workers may very well represent the Jews. Again, they had a covenant with God. Ryle writes the following. He says, we see the children of Israel called and chosen to be God's people in the very beginning of, quote, the day, right? The very beginning of the day. Who's these earliest workers? It's the children of Israel. Back to his quote. Ryle writes, we see the, we see the children of Israel called and chosen to be God's people in the very beginning of the day. We see some of the Gentiles called at a later period by the preaching of the apostles. But then he writes, we see others, Gentiles, everybody's not Jewish, we're all Gentiles, all the different ones. We see others being called in the present time by the laborers of missionary. When Raul wrote, wrote about that, he talked about the Chinese and the Hindus, right? It certainly be included, but 10,000 Chinese are coming to Christ a day. It needs to be a lot more. That's not enough to make a huge dent in the statistics, though each soul counts. His point being, the Jews were the first. Later on, get to the church age, 2,000 years later, the church is Jewish only. First the apostles, then just the Jews. But then after 7 to 10 years, here come some Gentiles and other Gentiles. So his point being is regardless of their history, regardless of their skin color, Write this down. Believing Gentiles receive the same relationship with God, children, and are made equal heirs of God. And none of what I just said negates the fact that God still has a special plan for the nation of Israel. Point being, they all, all of us, Gentiles and Jews there, we have the same relationship with God. We're brought in as adopted children. And we're all made equal heirs with God. And so that, I want to offer you one other. And this is more personal, maybe, to us. So who are these people that are out here working early, and they work all day long, and then these others come later, and some even come kind of right at the end? Who are those? If you're taking notes, write this thought. Perhaps the early workers represent those who are saved early in life. Some in this room. Saved early in life, and they serve God longer on earth than other people serve God on earth. Yeah. What happens with them? How do they compare with those that are going to be, again, borrowing from Ryle? So you got the picture? Some are saved very early in life, and they serve the Lord faithfully, and they serve the Lord long life on earth. Well, that's some people's story, and that's some people in here. That Literally, there are some older folks in this room that describes your life. So what's being taught? Again, borrowing from Ryle, he writes the following. This is an example. Quote, We see one man called to repentance and faith in the beginning of his days, like Timothy. Timothy is a teenager. Back to the quote. We see one man called to repentance and faith. Remember, you have to be called. We see one man called to repentance and faith in the beginning of his days like Timothy and laboring in the Lord's vineyard for 40 or 50 years. We see another man called at the 11th hour. 
Who's the primary 11th hour person that was saved in the New Testament? The what on the what? Thief on the cross. So he writes, we see another man called at the 11th hour like the thief on the cross. What's the point? Both these men are equally forgiven. Timothy saved as a teenager, serves the Lord all his life. This thief on the cross lives for the world, lives a hellacious life all of his life, gets saved literally in the final moments, has only a little bit of time to praise the Lord, dies. Both have all their sins forgiven. (laughs) And you know what the Lord does? Yep. He doesn't do, you know what, you guys here, you get like the new Jerusalem, the really good heaven. You here, you're kind of later in life, live for yourself. You got saved maybe the last seven, eight years. You'll get to live in kind of a kingdom on earth. You over here got saved on your deathbed. Guess what? You don't go to hell, but I'm going to annihilate you. They would take it. They would take that. But the Lord says, oh, no, no. Everybody gets the same relationship, get to go to the same heaven, same inheritance, same heirs. Now, to be clear, I'm going back to where we started. This parable is not about individual rewards based on faithfulness. It's about all believers receiving the same gift of eternal life. There will be levels of reward on an individual basis, but all that get to go, we all get this eternal life and this relationship with God. So hear it carefully. I'm almost done. Just really hear this. A murderer, an adulterer, a fornicator, a whoremonger, a thief, a drunk, the homosexual, the addict, the dealer, the meanest abusive person verbally and physically to their family and the blasphemer and the one who leads riots, if they ever fully trust the Lord Jesus Christ, they're going to get the same eternal life as the person that got saved five years old and served the Lord faithfully for 90 years. They get the same eternal life. God makes the rules. That's that's called grace. I get the whole thing. This, This parable is not a business model for somebody that owns a company, keeping the workers happy. I get it, but this is the way the Lord operates his kingdom. And so my very last thought is one that uh, I'll take just a moment. So the last will be first, and the first last. Is there a gentle rebuke for Peter? Say, Jeff, what do you mean? See, the the workers in verse 2, the 6 o'clock, they want to know what they're going to get, and they get a denarius. Peter and the disciples, what are we going to get? And they get told some of what they're going to get. I'm just wondering, when Peter asked that, and the Lord answered, to be clear, to be clear, Jesus gave, in answer to Peter's question, he gave reward as a legitimate reason to serve him. But I wonder if there's not a subtle rebuke in this story that, Peter, you're going to get blessed. I'm going to bless your socks off. I'm going to do way more than you think. It's going to be way better. But what I would really rather you do, I'd rather you be like the latter four groups who just want to work in the vineyard. They just want to serve the king, serve the landowner, serve the master, and just trust that he's going to do the right thing. I think what the Lord is saying, hey, Graceview, mark it down. I promise you, you put your faith and trust in Christ, and you serve him and him alone. I'm going to reward you so much, but I don't want you getting caught up wondering what all the specifics of the blessings are. You keep your head down, and you keep working, and let death come, and just let the surprise happen. Do it because you love me. Don't do it just for a reward. Do it because you love me. Don't do it because Jeff guilts you into doing something. Do it because you love me. Don't do it because it's a duty or a habit. Love me. Serve me. I promise you'll love what you get. Heads bowed, eyes closed, just for a moment.
We're going to pray. Now, just a few questions. First of all, can we just agree as heads bowed, eyes closed? Here's where we really got to start. God's ways are not our ways. <laughs> I learned that this week. Jeff, you got a long way to go, buddy, because when you read this story, my mind tends to think how unfair it is because I so associate with those early workers. I'm like, man, they, they just didn't get done right. Well, God's ways are not our ways, guys. And I promise you, you should be thankful for that. So can I ask you this? Have you begrudged God's grace to somebody else? I hope, I hope nothing comes to mind, but somebody heard that. And, and this is the fact. God, who's in charge, he controls, he if anybody has anything good, it's because God let it happen. Some good things has happened to someone and it's irritated you. Are you like verse 15? Do you begrudge my generosity? You ought to confess. Hey, Christian, have you inwardly accused God of being unfair to you? Is there anything in you? You think, Maybe you don't verbalize it that way, but it's in our irritation, our subtle subconscious thoughts. And we're accusing God of not being fair because he's not done that and that and that for us. He's more than fair. If you're a believer, it all ends up good for you. Hey, Christian, do you ever evaluate God's goodness to you by comparing your blessings with those around you? Is that a habit you have? I forget how they said it, but someone said, sometimes we'll look at something like Facebook and we want to compare their highlights and their glamour shots with our behind the scenes and it just looks like it's not the same. Well, remember, you're not seeing everything as it is. And stop comparing yourself to everybody else. And I guess my biggest question is this one. If you're a Christian, how often do you thank God for saving you? Do you realize, do you realize, Christian, do you realize He did not have to save you? He didn't have to. It's called grace. I'm, I'm literally, I want you to put a time on it. When is the last time you looked face to face when you were aware of God's presence and you just told him, God, thank you for choosing me. Thank you for loving me. Thank you for drawing me. However you word it, God, I mean where you mean it. When's the last time? If we don't do that daily, something is wrong. Christians, we ought to ask God right now, God, give me your understanding. Lord, I'm going through life with this twisted thinking. I'm listening to everybody else that has twisted thinking. God, help me to spend more time in your word, learn the principles, so I start thinking more and more like you. I want to know the truth, and I'm, I'm twisted and warped all by myself. I need you to make me new, and I need to be renewing my mind. And then, Christian, if you're a Christian, God's going to reward faithful service. Just do it out of love. Just get lost in love. We talked about this two previous Wednesday nights. Can I just encourage the whole group this morning? Read your Bible, however much you read it. Read it because God talks to you. Listen, you pray. Don't pray because I guilt you or anybody else or a duty. You pray because you get to talk to God. I get to talk to God. That's why I pray. 
come to church not because you have to and you ought to. Come to church because you're like, you know what? I love worshiping with God's people. I love studying the Word of God with God's people. I love fellowshipping with... Come out of love. Give, 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 give as much as you can to the Lord. Pour your resources into His kingdom. Why? Not out of duty and not just for the reward because you love Him. You love so thankful and grateful. God, I just want to give. You'll not be disappointed with what happens. And if you're sitting here this morning saying, well, I'm bitter about that second point, then just before I pray, here's what I encourage you. Then you focus and you make sure of this. Are you trusting Jesus and Him only? You just focus on that. Make sure in your heart you are trusting Jesus and Him only to save you, nothing of you. And then if you know that is true, then you just busy your life going and telling everybody else that you can ever find, hey, if you'll trust Jesus and Him alone, based off what He did on the cross, He'll save you from all your sin. You'll confess that to Him that you're a sinner and trust God's promises and put your faith in Jesus. I promise you, He'll give you eternal life. You just busy yourself doing that and let God use you. So Father, as we leave this morning, you're fair and more than fair. You are so much more, you are good. You are good all the time. And Lord, I just want to thank you for pouring out your undeserved, unearned grace and gifts on me and mine and these. Lord, may that be our message. Lord, may we not be fooled by appearances. May we just serve you to the end of our days. Let the judgment day be something that we're pleased with because you're pleased with how we lived our life. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.